Hello, welcome to Cultivating Conversations. This episode, we go high octane with James Lloyd-Jones, CEO and founder of UK-based vertical farm, the Jones Food Company. He's a man with vision. Lots of vertical farms grow a premium product for premium pricing, which is fine. I want a Rolls-Royce product sold at VW prices. Ambition. Within the business, there's a hundred side projects. How do we automate this better? How do we grow this better? How do we get more shell pipe? How do we get more customers? If you had 15 large-scale vertical farms in the UK, you could probably take away all import. Occasionally outspoken. If you're building your business on subsidy, you're building it on like a life support machine that can never be switched off. And successful. James has shown the world how vertical farmers can make the leap from startup to scale up. Adding perspective to the conversation is ESG expert Neil O'Shea. With all the excitement, some might even say uh, hype about vertical farming, alternative protein and so on. We should remember that the strengths of the incumbents are huge. Conventional industrial agriculture has 100 years of innovation, refinements, eking out of efficiencies and costs. So for all its grave side effects, and there are many, that system, nevertheless, it feeds the world today. That's the reality. And top-level leadership consultant, Sibylla Schiffman. What do we need from business leaders in agricultural technology and bioscience? The ability to look at what seem to be the most intractable problems for our society. To look at them and do something that Bob Johansson calls dilemma flipping. And that means looking at these instead of saying, no, nothing can be done here. Seek out what is the opportunity here. And also be courageous enough to say, I am not going to work with the existing market. I'm going to create a market from the bottom up and cultivate it sustainably with the input of others. This is Cultivating Conversations and I'm Claire Nazir. So let's dive into my conversation with James Lloyd-Jones and the creation of his vertical farm business. James, thank you very much for joining me today. The big question really on my lips is that you must have such width and depth and breadth of experience to go from creating something which obviously was a startup to now the largest vertical farm in Europe. I think trying quite hard is one of the things. I've been a professional trier since I left school at just over 16. But probably the serious answer is it really does come to a number of things that I've done in the past that have got to the point. I, I've been thinking about vertical farming before I even started for about seven years, um, seriously, furiously making notes in a notebook and things like that. But I've been involved in property development and uh, rental sale. I then branched into, because I didn't like working for people, so then went into renewable energy, building large scale solar farms and wind turbines. And then went back into property again, working for someone. I thought, no, I don't want to do this. So I looked through my notebooks and vertical farming had the notes in it. And I took this decision to effectively leave a very easy, cushy life, effectively. Lovely, lovely life, uh, enjoying all the benefits that came with it. And moved back in with my parents and spent a year researching full-time, designing and then building the first farm we had in Scunthorpe, which was the largest in Europe. I think it's now been overtaken, so you're very kind in saying that. But uh, we're now building the largest in the world down in Gloucestershire. 
So have you got a background in any type of farming or is this the newest sort of element to your portfolio to date? Uh, no background in farming. I don't like getting cold. I don't like getting muddy. I love tractors, but uh, you need a farm to have one. I don't have one. I went to an agricultural boarding school for about two terms from central London and realised it wasn't the life for me. So no, no background. And I think that's what's actually given the benefit to the vertical farm, because I didn't come with any preconceptions. I didn't know how to grow anything. I thought, well, isn't this the right thing to do? Rather than someone going, well, that's not how we do it. You know, I'm not interested in not how you do it. Like, shouldn't we do it a different way? And vertical farms, you know, are a way of building big plant factories. So the Scunthorpe site was genuinely the first site I've ever built. You know, if you do a stepping stone, like a container, then a grow through and then build it a little bit bigger. You think you're doing amazing all the way through, but you'll take years to do it. Whereas I'd rather build something big. And work it out, you know, make the machine work rather than, you know, these stepping stones, which I think in Britain we are, we're fantastic coming up with fantastic ideas. We're really bad at telling the rest of the world. And then someone around the world will see it, an American or Chinese company, a European company, then buy that really good idea and then make it big. So I thought, no, I'm going to do it the sort of James Dyson or the uh, anti-Bamford way who owns JCB and go, I'm going to build it and then we will make it work. That's so impressive. And to be honest, you know, you have got a lot of vision because the world of technology has absolutely accelerated through the last decade. And particularly for you when it comes to LED lights, which you wouldn't have been able to create what you do now 15 years ago. Yeah, I think the price of LED lights came down massively. Don't get me wrong, they're still expensive when we're paying bills and thinking, oh, they still haven't come down that much. But in reality, they have. But hydroponics isn't new you know it's been around since the babylons 2009 when the fukushima disaster happened in japan japan took off with vertical farms but they put a a real value on food in the uk we have the sixth cheapest food in the world and some of the highest regulation and the population don't put any real value you know thanks to the likes of jeremy clarkson's farm general population know that farming is a little bit hard you know there's a lot a lot of rich farmers well there are but you know there's a lot of poor farmers By doing vertical farm, I'm actually just shortening the supply chain. That's all. I'm not selling you the dream that we're going to beat world hunger. You're not. You know, we already produce enough food for the population that's going to be greater than 2050. We produce enough food in the world, 10 billion people already. What we're very good at is wasting food. So vertical farms, though, is we're not not producing for the future. We are, of course. We're just becoming more efficient how we produce it and shortening the wastage so we can get it from me to you within 24 hours. So your vertical farm, the first one you built, the largest in Europe at the time, near Scunthorpe, which is just in North Lincolnshire, which has a huge farming community. You know, you're placed quite well when it comes to all those skills that you need to grow. Yeah, none of which were used in truth. No one in Scunthorpe had any background in farming. We had people that spent time in prison, uh, people that have put bus shelters and bike shelters around the UK. We had uh, guys from Latvia, Lithuania who were cleaners. We had printers. No one that actually knew how to seed anything. But that was probably the better way of doing it rather than a farmer coming in and going, well, that's how we do things And, and not having that ambition. Whereas I'm always... When people tap you around the shoulder and say, wow, that's an amazing amount of produce you've kicked out, you know, half a ton a day. That's great. But 
who cares? You know, when can we get to 600 kilos, 700 kilos? Because we don't know the sort of uh, limitations that farmers are used to, I'm always like, well, okay, we're here, but why can't we be there? And we haven't found that point yet. And that's mainly because failing is part of learning. And if you fail fast, you learn quicker and you can then ensure that you're pushing uh, the boundaries. And that's where the US have a real head on on the UK. In the UK, if you have one failure, you are a failure and it takes five, 10 years to lick your wounds. In the US, they see it as huge learning. So you've got vertical farms in the US, one of which is a company called Plenty, who put out a press release saying, look, we changed 14 times. If you did that in the UK, once you changed a third time, you'd have had no funding. That's why we've just gone, right, we've kept it very quiet and ensured that we're always trying to learn from our failures. You are amazing. I really want to read the book that you will eventually write because I think you'll be an inspiration to so many entrepreneurs. And one particular thing that I've learned through doing these interviews is scaling up. It's such a scary prospect for so many startups. The cost involved in particular is absolutely gruesome when you, you start so small. So as yeah. you say, you've just literally gone, we are going for this. Where does your money come from? Are there, is there that much interest in vertical farming when it comes to investment? There's a huge amount of interest in vertical farming, mainly driven by ESG policies of funds and things. But there's a lot of greenwashing. And effectively, lots of vertical farms grow a premium product for premium pricing, which is fine. For instance, Harrods have one store in the world and they're premium, aren't they? That's where people want to go. Sainsbury's have 5,000 stores in the UK. And that's where everyone goes. So I'd rather be the Sainsbury's and scale where we produce a premium product at price point everyone can afford. So I just want to be the Sainsbury's. I want to be the VW. I don't want to be Rolls-Royce. I want a Rolls-Royce product sold at VW prices. And the scaling, the only way vertical farming gets to the point of scale and is, let's be fair, taken seriously, is to be scalable within an industry, the supply chain of food. And then we can be a real uh, contender. And that's what we're doing. That's why we're forcing ourselves to build more. It's capitally intensive. But now people are seeing it. They've seen me for three, four years are going, well, why don't we asset back this? This is all component parts now that you've developed. You know, you can asset back a lawnmower. You can asset back a car. Why can't you asset back a vertical farm? It's just a big machine. It's a plant factory. And so that is going to allow us to scale quicker, 100%. And by scaling, it actually de-risks the business. It's not a scale where like Uber or Getter or these guys, where they're having to scale and cost themselves to win business. With us, we're building a factory that then, believe it or not, produces a product that you sell. And then once you get the money from selling it, it sort of pays it all back. If you have one problem with one factory, you've got other factories to you know, mop up the mess, as it were, or fill the void is probably the better way of putting it. So scaling with vigour is central to his business plan. Yet, despite admitting to a lack of practical knowledge of farming when he first began, what James was armed with was an invaluable understanding of ESG investment. And his timing, perhaps, was also spot on. Here's Neil O'Shea, Managing Director at Discern Sustainability. 
it is impossible for investors to win business in these markets these days without a strong ESG story. And that's what really marks sort of a sea change from the past. However, there are valid, in my view, cries of greenwashing abounding. So what this means for vertical farming is that unless it performs horribly, it is likely to be a beneficiary of the greenwashing backlash because its environmental benefits are essentially not in dispute. The story is quite clear. However, it's not all hydroponically grown roses. Okay, It remains a hard area to invest in for several reasons. The biggest pure play vertical farming company is valued at not even, I think, $1 billion, which sounds like a lot, but actually it makes it very small for large investors, those ones that tend to punch the greatest weight in terms of growing markets overall. They're almost entirely privately owned. There are a few listed ones, but most of them are privately owned. And this means that the big institutional investors would end up owning a large slice of an illiquid investment, which increases their risk. They can't just sell it at the flick of the keystroke at the first sign of bad news. Actually, there are investors out there who are a very good match for vertical farming in terms of their risk appetite, how long they're willing to hold a stock. This type of investment, I would say, is much better suited to specialist investors like venture capital, private equity. They can hold companies for five years. They can kind of withstand ebbs and flows of markets and be a little bit more long term. Um, and indeed, some of these players, and, and some of them are our clients, they have set up what are called impact funds to house these sort of high sustainability alpha companies. So the investment interest is ripe. But what about retail response? Let's go back to James. Talking of Sainsbury's and other major supermarkets, have they signed on to your product? Obviously, I think their remit has certainly changed even in the last couple of years of producing much more shelf-based, say, uh, meatless meats, et cetera, and vegan, sustainably produced food. But are your products classed as organic? Have you got that seal of approval from those kite marks? It's interesting that you say, do we have a seal of approval because it's organic? Organic is, I think, a bit of a fallacy. You know, you can have organic produce, but if you knew some of the stuff that goes on, is it really organic? I don't know. I don't work in those worlds and I've got no reason to comment on it. Um, we trademark beyond organic because we can't be called organic because we don't grow in the soil and the soil association give out the, you know, the organic stamps. We are truly no pesticides. We are ready to eat. We've got no soil splash. We've got very low microbial. How does the retailer see it? To be honest, retailers buy on price. That's it. And we work with two very, very interesting companies. We are effectively the growers. So we build factories, grow food that then goes to a packer and then goes into a retailer. Now, these guys wouldn't be buying off us if we weren't at the right price. We work in a commoditized market. You have to be at a price that everyone can afford. It's we build big plant factories to produce the product that everyone can afford. And it's not just leafy greens and herbs. You know, the industry is moving to soft fruits, cut flowers, all sorts of things, so that you become part of a, a supply chain. If you had 15 large-scale vertical farms in the UK, you could probably take away all import. So they're hugely fantastic at producing lots and lots of weight and a, a very sustainable way. But, you know, will the retailers pay a premium? No, because it's cheaper for them to import. And will the UK public pay a premium? No, not really. Not anyone outside London or Bristol or maybe Manchester. 
you know, it, I'm not selling you a story. I'm selling you a product that's nutritionally valuable that can be on your plate within 24 hours. That's it. Okay, so you can choose what you grow, as you say, and that's diversifying all the time. I presume that your products aren't sensitive to season because it's all no. enclosed. What is the biggest food that we import when it comes to vegetables or, or beyond that? And is that something that you want to almost corner the market in the UK? Like I was giving an example, avocados, say. Yeah. Is that something that you would be interested in farming and producing? And then could you therefore then match the price of the ones that we import from thousands of miles away because they have they're quite controversial avocados they seem to have a a massive environmental footprint associated with them look we can corner herbs and leafy greens now you know within the next two three years that's a big tick let's start with that i can do i've grown turnips radishes uh cut flowers vines hops all sorts it all comes down to a scale it's like the amazon model you cannot have a small distribution center selling at a low price. You need a big distribution and then you need loads of them. We've got a really exciting R&D facility down in Bristol and that's doing everything that you want to talk about. You know, avocados, we're not doing. I don't like avocados. I think avocado and toast is horrible. (laughs) So it's not for me. So we just don't do it. But no, in all seriousness, uh, soft fruits is something that we're really targeting hard. Cut flowers. Cut flowers is you know, leafy greens and herbs is 600 million in the UK, cut flowers is 2 billion. So let's go after that one. Uh, and that's what we're working on at the moment. And then hops, you know, anything where you have huge seasonality, which affects the quality and, and sort of the, uh, the specification, we can go after. But again, by doing it at scale is the way you bring your price point down. So anyone can use the products that you, you produce. What about something like, say, pea protein, which has been in the news a lot because obviously it's a brilliant ingredient for creating meats. And, and, you know, if you look at what's happened, the wildfires in Canada, they produce a lot of pea protein. I mean, and climate change impacts have really devastated farming across the world when it comes to this type of crop, which is just going through the roof in demand. Well, we haven't uh, looked at pea protein specifically. The UK is very good at growing peas. We grow a lot of peas and then harvest them in a two-week period and then put them into cold store. Now, the question is, are we affecting the environment by storing these peas in cold store using a lot of energy for a long time? What we're looking at is mushrooms. Effectively, mushrooms, protein and fats, similar to peas, soy, stuff like that. You can grow mushrooms very cheaply. I think where we should be having the conversation is soy. Soy production is so impactful on the environment. You know, rainforest being cut down, moving soy around the world. But peas, we're very good at in the UK. Climate change is not something that affects vertical farms. If anything, we can be very mercenary. And with longer, sunnier days, we can run with more renewable energy. Well, we have less wind, but solar and battery is becoming more prevalent in the UK. And that can power the vertical farms and allow the fields then to rest or take away, say, products we grow from field grown and allow peas to be grown in their place. You talk about your skills base and the fact that you didn't bring any of the farming community into your business. But I presume you've got a lot of analysts, people are using AI. You talk about your R&D plant in Bristol. Um, So you're pushing the boundaries all the time to actually reduce growth cycle, increase productivity, et cetera. So what type of skills are you looking to bring into your business? 
So we do have the machine learning guys. I always uh, got mistaken. I always said AI guys, but it turns out machine learning then makes the AI, not we get the okay. AI people. So I blame Will Smith for that. <laughs> yes, ML, AI, and there's a lot of yeah. acronyms, aren't there? Yeah. It's because of them, they, uh, they ruined the job descriptions. But uh, yeah, so what we're really pushing on is actually partly the engineering so that we use water and energy far better. We've got some really good backers, one of which is uh, one of our investors is Ocado, so they are very good at automation. And then we've got uh, Harmony Energy, who are very good at large uh, battery storage utility sites in the UK, so they advise us on our energy. And we've got some exciting people to talk about in the future as well that are already helping us now, but we can't talk about now, but they are helping us crack the energy. Anyone that is practical, we want the practical people to do the growing and people that aren't fearful of trying. So I'd rather someone try and then go, James, that didn't work. Then go, we didn't do it. Well, why not? Oh, because we didn't want to be told off. So we've employed lots of very, very bright people who are completely, I've got a fantastic uh, person up at Scunthorpe who's, who's 22. She's got a first class degree in chemistry and prawn production. And I think her background is she was from a military family. And actually, not the degrees, the exciting bit, it's the military family. She's very independent. She knows how to get around. So she's now 22, effectively running the system and trying things because she's not scared to try, fail, learn. And she's been fantastic. So those are the sort of people we employ. One of the reasons why I wanted to interview James is that his leadership skills shine through. Here's Sibylla Schiffman, founding director of Deostra, a leadership consultancy. I asked her, what are the leadership qualities that drive a business with a sustainable remit to financial success? I'm going to draw on the work of Ed Sarasvati, who did some really interesting research into 27 expert entrepreneurs and they were founders of businesses that had turnovers ranging from 200 million up to six and a half billion and she discovered that there were some key mindsets or approaches that informed their decision making and there are five principles she came up with the principles of effectuation that support a startup to enable it to be established and to build fast the first principle is the bird in the hand. And I think this is really critical and it really relates to James Lloyd Jones. This idea of starting with who I am, what I know and who I know. So who I am is a deep question. It's about what's my purpose? What are, what are my values? What do I believe in? And so really that passion for sustainability is absolutely core. It's what will drive you through all those dark days and problems. The idea of what I know is his expertise. So he started, didn't he, as um, a, an expert in renewable energy and also knew about the investment climate for agricultural investment. And so being able to, if you like, build on that and then whom I know is about the network. So he literally started to catalyze those investment opportunities in order to build his unique farm. The next principle is this idea of affordable loss. Entrepreneurs, they won't go for a big bang investment all or nothing. They will literally work gradually and invest what they can afford to lose. And even if it doesn't come good, they get the learning from that, harvest that and move on with that. 
the next one is about lemonade principle. And I think James is such a great example of this. He's actually looking at what are intractable problems for the 21st century, agriculture, food production, food waste. And he's turning them on their head and going, this is an opportunity and working with these ideas as entrepreneurial ideas. So it's it's this idea of um, being opportunistic, if you like. The final two is about your network. This idea of building a patchwork quilt. An entrepreneur will work with his stakeholders earlier on. It might be suppliers, investors, partners, even customers, and literally grow and cultivate the market together. They co-create the market as opposed to seeing market out there. They really are disrupting in that sense markets. And the final idea that you can see in his 14 years before he became an overnight success, to quote him, is this idea about being the pilot in your plane. So you focus on what's within your control and you create the outcomes that you're determining, as opposed to saying that the future's out there and predictable. If the future is not predictable, as we know, and it's what we can make it. So they're the kind of qualities for expert entrepreneurs like James. And James is looking for like-minded people to share his vision and drive. If you come to me and say, look, I've got this skill, okay, great, that will help. But are you a good fit in the company? Do you want to actually make a difference? Do you want to, I'm not going to be so uh, mad saying, do you want to change the world? But do you want to do something that's impactful? Well, yes. Okay, well, that's more interesting to me than, you know, being able to be a nuclear physicist sort of thing. I don't need that bit. I need someone that wants to change things. I love that about your company because you're really nurturing a real true spirit, which is Gen Z, which is where we have to go. There is no way back now. And if you look at how technologies are disrupting, how industry is disrupting, agriculture has always been on the back burner, but that is going in the same direction. And I've learned that more and more so by talking to people like yourself. And you need to surround yourself by like-minded people who want to go in the same direction. Like-minded and people that challenge. You know, so maybe I should employ more farmers to tell me I'm doing it wrong. Best 22, I think. And then our oldest guys are in their 60s and they built like satellite technology. You know, it's there's a real understanding by Gen Z of climate change. You know, climate change is, you know, positively for us. If you look at financier, they've been privately defunding coal, nuclear and renewables is on the up. We'll use climate change as a way of accelerating vertical farming. I think that's important. But we're not going to hit everyone over the head. But the Gen Z guys that we have coming through, they want to make a change. You know, they don't all want to work for Google on half a million quid a year, selling a lot of advertisement or or search. We can afford to pay them well, but they make a real difference because what they do now, and it all comes back down to making mistakes, what they do If they make it right, we implement it straight away. And there's no right or wrong at the moment. You forget in the UK, we're very innovative. We're very good at doing stuff. And, you know, we're world leaders in renewable energy, aren't we? Do you think the government is supporting um, organisations like yourself um, with regulation and and how they have done for farmers just so that, you know, no. But I don't care for it because actually... Farming in the US, the vertical farms get subsidy, which I think is mad, you know, is, you know, if you're building your business on subsidy, you're building it on like a life support machine that can never be switched off. So, no, the UK government haven't supported me in subsidy. We've never had an Innovate UK. I've never had a grant. The best thing DEFRA have done is just not get in our way. We know what we need to do. If we want a food system 
which is reliant on short term, so being able to grow and deliver to the customer, to truly cut out food waste, you've got to be in big business where everything is margins, you know, so you're 5%, 10%. So I want, I want you, Claire, to eat my products so you have less food waste, so you have a higher nutritional value. Now, if I use subsidize that, I might as well not worry about getting it to you because I'm getting paid anyway. And actually, for climate change, I'm going to grow something with renewable energy and get it to you without any food waste. Because food waste is the third largest global CO2 emitter after China and America. Isn't that appalling? You know, no one talks about food waste. No one, and it comes down to education. Stop wasting food. People should buy food and understand when they open their fridge, they don't then take what else's fridge and put it in the bin because it's got used by. Use it. Do something. But, you know, that's uh, that's away from vertical farming. I can only help get the food to you quicker so that you can eat a healthier, fresher product. And so you're less likely to throw it away. One of the things I'd love to know is, would you ever sell your company for a huge amount of money? say, by a multinational? Well, Claire, I can answer that quicker than that. I'm already, our majority investor is a multinational company. Right. I don't need to know, and I don't need to know now if I need to sell the company. I rather, you know, everyone needs to eat. That's a fact of life. So there are going to be large vertical farming companies in the world uh, or large part of large agricultural companies like Cargill and stuff. So I'm already owned by a multinational, so I'm okay at the moment. And and I just want to, you know, the more we build, like I said earlier in the interview, the more we build, the more it becomes the norm, the more it becomes sustainable. Let me do that for a bit. I'm, I'm too young to sell. Creating a business that has the right green credentials is one thing, but competing with cheaper mass-produced imports is another. This is where scaling is so important, to create a more robust and competitive farm-to-fork strategy. Another tick for the Jones Food Company. But perhaps there is a final piece in this business model that carries significant weight. Here's Neil O'Shea. We should remember that the strengths of the incumbents are huge. Conventional industrial agriculture, well, it has 100 years of innovation, refinements, eking out of efficiencies and costs. So for all its grave side effects, and there are many, that system, nevertheless, it feeds the world today. That's the reality. So the way I tend to see vertical farming and what I'd advise clients on is that it is one of an arsenal of techniques that will have to be deployed to transform agriculture. But what we've also seen with many of those, especially highly technological solutions, is that the contexts and the conditions in which technologies like vertical farming really make a difference, they're quite specific, and that applies a structural break to the scalability of vertical farming. It works extremely well in the Netherlands, a high-density, small country, which is technologically very advanced. A key example would be the Middle East. When you consider the conditions there, it's, of course, highly arid. Uh, it gets huge amounts of um, solar energy, uh, and energy is a key part of the model for vertical farming. Also, of course, there's restraints on water, but water is recycled in a closed loop in vertical farming. And the fact that these countries will also already be paying a premium for importing these um, you know, fresh food and vegetables into that country. So that means that they can afford to have a more expensive vertical farming model than would be viable, for example, in the United States uh, or in Western Europe. 
um, there is that extra bit of headroom for them in the economic model to make that work for them. And so when you consider the United Arab Emirates, places like these, you, you can well envisage how they can become more self-sufficient through productive units of vertical farming attached to their buildings, their hotels, etc., etc. So I think that's a very good example of where if the conditions are right, it probably represents the ideal, the best scenario. So locality is everything. Going forward, what qualities does a business leader need to sustain excellence? Final thoughts from Sibylla Schiffman, Deostra. It's such a great question. Um, how do you sustain business excellence? And I think for James and people like him, the answer lies not just with him exclusively. It lies in creative solutions, being flexible about how he moves forward with his business, but also innovation is critical. Otherwise, his business will die. And who can leverage that innovation? Well, actually, his amazing staff, network, partnerships, that's where the creative solutions, if you like, can be cultivated. And if he, through his staff, can create space for them to come up with great ideas, try them out, repeat that kind of entrepreneurial thought process, he'll start to leverage their creativity. And Daniel Pink talks about what motivates us in his book called Drive. And what motivates us is autonomy. So give people free reign to experiment and try things out. Mastery, we want to get skilled. We want to really improve things. It's a real drive for us is excellence. But the, the final one, and this links to the sustainability agenda, and it's no accident the kind of people who've come around him, they're equally committed to the agenda. It's about enabling people to work with purpose and to create things that they know will have a lasting impact beyond their time in the organisation. Thoughts for the future? This is what James had to say. Until you get, I feel we're really part of it and we're safe, there's no need for other side projects. Within the business, there's a hundred side projects. How do we automate this better? How do we grow this better? How do we get more shelf life? How do we get more customers? If you're thinking, if anyone's successful that goes, I'm really successful, so I'm going to do a side project. Hey, you're missing out on something you shouldn't be doing in your business. So hopefully I've got five, ten more years of uh, internal side projects to uh, to keep me busy. Well, that's just really inspiring. And do you know what, James? It's great to you've got so much energy. You really have. And I'm sure you work everyone really hard as well, even though I know it's an inspiring environment. It's like that is high octane. I'd rather get a speeding ticket in the fast lane than <laughs> in the slow lane. James Lloyd-Jones, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I will be watching with interest to see what you do next. Lovely to speak to you. James Lloyd-Jones, founder and CEO of Jones Food Company. My sincere thanks for his honest, energised and inspiring conversation. My thanks also to industry experts, Neil O'Shea from Discern Sustainability and Sibylla Schiffman from Deostra. For more information on their organisations, go to chasemanglobal.com and there you will find also more podcasts in this series. I'm Claire Nazir and you've been listening to Cultivating Conversations. Cultivating Conversations.